0: What you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia, environmental radio show on Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP in Philadelphia, and on gtownradio.com. Today, we're on a call with Samir Patel. Hi, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: We will be talking about sustainable building design, but before we get into all of that, could you just say a few words about yourself?
1: Yeah. um, So as you mentioned, my name is Samir Patel. I'm an architect at Digsaw Architects here in Philadelphia, uh, kind of a mid-sized firm. Uh, I've been practicing pretty much exclusively in the city of Philadelphia for 20 years, and I'd say most of that has been focused on sustainable design. Um, I'm also teaching at Drexel University as an adjunct faculty, which is uh, really great to talk to students kind of early in their careers or potentially before they've even started their careers um, about the topic of sustainable design. So,
0: Just to start out, what is meant by sustainable design?
1: Yeah, that's um, a big question with many different uh, potential answers, uh, which sometimes is the problem, but If you boil it down, it's an idea of designing the built environment buildings, spaces that we inhabit and uh, live in, in a manner that uh, equitably allocates resources, um, and also creates healthy environments for its inhabitants.
2: Yeah, equitably. Say what you mean by that.
1: It's an interesting thing, because buildings utilize, obviously, a lot of resources to build them. Um, and also draw a lot of energy to to run them. Um, And oftentimes, especially in cities like Philadelphia, those resources are utilized for, I'd say, certain buildings, say large skyscrapers downtown and things like that. And um, what ends up happening is the proportional pollution and greenhouse gas emissions and everything that are part of that uh, inherently affect those of lesser means who aren't um, producing that much greenhouse gas. So... It's kind of an unequitable, unjust situation where um, we kind of need these larger infrastructural buildings to be built, but they're impacting those with lesser means more so than others.
0: And you're specifically talking about buildings? Are you talking about the areas around buildings and how it meets up with other elements in the neighborhood, say?
1: Yeah, it, it kind of all comes into play in the discussion of sustainability. But for me, um, as an architect, my focus is, is predominantly on buildings. Um, although, obviously, we do get into a lot of landscape. And and even as a firm, we do a lot of kind of auxiliary spaces, I'll say, that are between the buildings, you know, several, a lot of parks and kind of green spaces for people to inhabit.
2: When you're talking about sustainability, you're not necessarily talking about environmentally sustainable building or
1: are you? I think the the major focus over the years has been on energy efficiency um, and and somewhat rightfully so. As time has progressed, that scope or that discussion of sustainability has broadened quite a bit more recently, especially when you start factoring in time, uh, that discussions revolved around embodied carbon footprint, which is the emissions and everything like that from the building infrastructure, so the materials that it takes to build buildings. But there's also a lot to do with human health, uh, especially as it relates to things like biophilic design or how can buildings connect people with nature. Um, You know, we spend a lot of times in buildings. Unfortunately, a lot of time, the materials we're surrounded by are not great for our health. The views or lack thereof are not conducive to human health. Um, the, the indoor air quality and the comfort levels are, are not conducive to, to human health. And so unfortunately, the industry has gone that route, but there's a lot of emphasis on sustainable design as a whole to treat broad scope of, of topics.
0: So it sounds like the whole concept has grown and changed over the last few years
1: yeah similar to a lot of the discussion around sustainability i think it's it's more that folks have started to understand that there's kind of an intermix of all these elements together you know as we start to move buildings off of fossil fuels and move them to be kind of all electric buildings we can also shift them to clean energy which helps with air quality As we insulate buildings better and make them more airtight, we're making them more energy efficient, but we're also able to provide better indoor air quality for folks, which obviously in the context of the pandemic that we had a few years ago is a really important topic. Everyone's starting to realize that this isn't kind of a cut and dry thing as uh, let's do a net zero building and energy is kind of all we need to focus on. I think everyone's starting to realize that it's uh, a lot more broad than that.
2: Let's then define what a net zero building is, because you hear a lot about achieving net zero.
1: Again, similar to sustainable design, a a bit of a blurry definition. Um, And that's because there's a lot of different agencies and rating systems that have different definitions of it. But at its core, uh, what net zero has been defined at, at was a building usually on an annual basis that uses as much electricity as it can generate. So typically via solar panels on the roof, as time has progressed, that definition has has changed a little bit to also include things like the embodied carbon footprint. So now it's talking about net zero for the entire carbon footprint of the building, um, not just operational. Uh, And also, I'd say, historically, it's always been focused on site electricity. So how much uh, electricity does the building use at its site. Um, more and more recently, there's been discussion of what's called source energy. So it's taking into account how the energy is being generated at the plant and how it's being delivered to the site, which is a, a, could be a major impact depending on the region that you're in within the United States. They're they're trying to generate as much electricity as as possible, but um, especially in environments like Philadelphia, where land is kind of a premium, we have small footprints of buildings. So it's really difficult to generate enough electricity. So we have to start with the discussion of how do we make our buildings as efficient as possible first, so they require as little energy as possible. Once we start with that, we can then start talking about electric generation via solar panels.
0: And do you include things like geothermal?
1: Yeah, oftentimes, um, again, a little bit difficult to do in the city, although it has been done um, on a handful of occasions. But geothermal is a great way to uh, create an efficient energy system. You're kind of using the fact that it's a fairly constant temperature below ground throughout the course of the year to bring in that regulated air temperature instead of pulling in, say, zero degree in the wintertime or, you know, 90, 85, 90 degree weather in the summertime. And having to adjust it, you're pulling from the ground, which is kind of more of a steady, somewhere in the 55 degree range.
2: Well, there are a number of green rating certification systems for buildings. Could you describe what those are and compare and contrast them?
1: Yeah, there's a a lot of different rating systems. I think um, recently I saw somewhere that there was over 60 rating systems across the world. But essentially, what they're trying to do is create a checklist for designers, developers to work through the design process and come up with a building that's sustainable. So ones like LEED, uh, there's Living Building Challenge. They're a little bit more holistic in their efforts. So they're looking at uh, reducing the energy footprint, looking at materials and the, the material health. Looking at kind of also uh, tie into infrastructure uh, around them, bicycle networks, things like subway or bus lines, you know, or are you trying to develop in those regions? So they're very broad. There's other ones like FitWell, and there's a well-building standard as well. Those are really focused on human health. And there's one called Passive House, which is really focused on energy and somewhat as a byproduct, it ends up focusing on indoor air quality as well. So they do tend to overlap more and more we're seeing as folks go for, say, living building challenge, which is a, a very hard to hit target. Um, people will bring in things like passive house to meet the energy goals of of living building challenge. So there there is some overlap there.
0: I'm sorry, so, you mentioned the term passive house. What do they mean by that?
1: I'm glad you asked that question because I think a lot of folks get confused between um, I think it was, say, in the 60s and 70s, there was uh, passive solar housing, which was very uh, kind of popular. Uh, This is a bit different from that. This is a certification system, and I believe it was a mix of Germany and Canada that were pushing this. Essentially, what it is is a a high level of insulation on your envelope, uh, an extremely airtight building design, looking at things called thermal bridging, which is where your insulation may have breaks especially at junctures between windows and walls and things like that there's areas of no insulation often um, so this is limiting that so it's creating an extremely efficient building enclosure um, and it's using principles based in building science so it's really understanding how those walls work how the thermal insulation works with the air barrier to create a, a great thermal envelope with an airtight building but also looking at moisture management. So not just rain and things like that, but how do we prevent condensation and mold within the walls, uh, which is a really critical topic as well for indoor air quality.
0: I think also earlier you said something about more airtight buildings being better air quality. Yeah, I thought that that made them worse actually.
2: I guess (laughs) it depends on the the materials in, in the house and what chemicals leak out of them.
1: There's a handful of things that go into play here. And, and this is a common discussion too, because when you create these airtight buildings, you do need to in- introduce mechanical ventilation, especially in climates like ours where, you know, maybe half the year you, you don't want to open your windows. It's a bit too cold. So with that mechanical ventilation, you're filtering the air that's coming in and you're controlling where the air's coming in from. Traditionally on, on homes, we've kind of relied on them being naturally leaky because of the fact that they're the holes and gaps and things in places. The unfortunate part there is it's usually that that air is coming in in places that you don't want it to. So that's the same place that rodents or water are coming in. So there's often mold and and air quality issues. So the idea behind a passive house is if you can get that airtight envelope, you're introducing mechanical ventilation to also bring in fresh natural air. And then you're having to heat and cool very minimally. Often in, in this region, you can get away with barely using your heating, even throughout the winter. It's, it's a very efficient way to do things.
2: Because people are the most knowledgeable and familiar with lead, mm. and have already built a lot of buildings like that, maybe you can talk about the criticisms of lead.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about that. And lead, when it started, did a fantastic job of kind of getting the, the discussion going and uh, somewhat proliferating the Idea of sustainable buildings throughout the world of developers and people who are in charge of designing and building large-scale buildings. I, I think over time, the criticism has been that they're not pushing hard enough to meet the goals that we need to um, as a society to, you know, stay within kind of these climate boundaries that have been defined. I think the other problem with some of the certification systems, like LEED, is that they're checklist-based. So instead of having uh, an idea of a holistic design approach from the beginning, you end up kind of chasing these points. And it may be that it's not the best thing for the building, but you can get an easy point by doing something. I think their, their idea was, let's get everyone used to this. And then they've been kind of adjusting as they go and tightening the restrictions. I know they have a, uh, a lead zero now that's pushing towards net zero energy and embodied carbon footprint, I believe. Uh, things like living building challenge are a little bit more open to interpretation. There are a series of imperatives that they call, and um, you're somewhat free to design as as long as you're kind of thinking of those things um, as you go. It's not necessarily a checklist approach.
0: Is there a relation between disaster protection and sustainable building?
1: Yeah, you know, I think everyone's aware that most of the goals are targeting 2030 or 2050 to get carbon emissions down to a certain level. And so as we slowly approach those goals, I think everyone's coming to the understanding that there's a high likelihood that even if we do a great job with things, there's going to be some changes that we have to deal with, some acclimatization. So the topic of resiliency has become a really important one, which deals with what you were just referring to, You know, There's regions that are going to have more severe weather systems and severe weather patterns. And how do we deal with that? How do we mitigate that? There needs to be a lot more thought put into that than than, than there has been. I think it's a really critical thing, especially in, again, in the context of what we were talking to related to equity, because it's it's one thing when industries or people have the money to kind of build these more robust buildings. But um, the folks that don't have that financial means. It needs to end up getting built into code and built into legal means to actually make sure that all buildings are kind of built that way.
0: And that leads into affordability.
1: Yeah. There's been a a, a really great push in the low-income housing market. Essentially, uh, the way the tax credits work is there's a series of bullet points that if you hit these metrics, you get a point or two. And as they look at which projects will receive low income taxing credit, they're looking at those points. Pretty recently, there's been a major push around the country to incorporate things like uh, passive house and sustainability into those points. So if you're targeting a passive house project, you can get additional points to that. And And that
0: would still be at low income housing? It would be affordable to do that?
1: yeah it would still be affordable because the government would be subsidizing portions of it now the other thing i'll say is when uh, you talk about affordability that's a big topic in sustainability and i think part of it is because it's been always thought of as an add-on so typically what happens is we, we des- design buildings and then towards the end someone will say well let's let's see how we can make this sustainable can we add some things to it and and the cost goes up drastically um, if we're able to incorporate that into our design process in like a holistic way, talk about it early and get everybody to buy in on it, typically the cost isn't nearly as great as what it used to be. It's pretty low actually. And and especially if you're able to look at things in kind of a long-term life cycle analysis, then you're able to see, you know, we may pay some more for insulation or airtight construction but we can downgrade our mechanical systems. And we'll also save on our annual heating and cooling bills. So kind of in the long term, this will end up paying off. And it also, in, in terms of health, there's been a lot of studies that have shown uh, incidence of things like asthma are much lower in, in children who live in passive houses because the air quality is much better. It really does have a kind of a wide uh, range of benefits.
2: I would be interested in your thoughts about the trends and sustainable designs.
1: The firm I work for here, we tend to try and stay away from trends necessarily, but there are a few themes that tend to pop up uh, in our work quite a bit. And I see those themes somewhat starting to make their way into more and more buildings, one of which is materiality and really thinking about the materials that we use and how we use them. Um, We often tend to lean towards more natural materials and materials that have kind of a connection to a place. So not exactly sustainability in the way that I think most people tend to think about it, but it is trying to connect buildings to their place and to a community and one of the things that's really great about doing that other than you know idea of it being contextual is that when people fall in love with a building and when they can uh, kind of be a part of the building it's less likely that they're going to tear it down when it needs to be retrofitted for another use so the building's going to last longer Um, when we're using natural materials things like brick are really great because they have this durability and longevity I think the other critical piece of it is manufacturing of those materials. And as we're um, in crunch time here, trying to make as large of an impact as we can quickly, it becomes really critical how the materials we use get manufactured. So I'll use, continue to use Brick as an example. Um, in working with Glungary, they they're doing some really great stuff to bring the carbon footprint of their manufacturing processes down. So not only do they have a sustainable material, but they're trying to manufacture it in a way that's sustainable. That goes to kind of that idea of the embodied carbon footprint of the, of the project.
0: People talk about manufacturing buildings or homes in factories and then bringing them to the site. So are you talking about stick-built to site-built homes? Or are you talking about broader processes?
1: We typically stick-built still there has been more and more prefabricated construction. There's pluses and minuses to it. I, I think a lot of folks, when they think of prefabricated, are thinking, uh, let's say, like a hotel where like each room could be individually built and then it's kind of dra- craned into place. That's less the case. And, and more and more what we're seeing is panelized modular wall systems. Each individual wall is built the same way it would be on site, but it's done in a factory where... There's better working conditions, better um, for safety, but also for tolerance. And then everything gets built and shipped to the site. But the great part of that is on site, the trades can just work as they normally would. They're still dealing with wood framing or metal framing, but they're able to have that tolerance. I don't think that inherently the uh, prefabrication is more sustainable, but I am seeing a lot more companies dive into that sustainable market where they're prefabricating exterior wall panels that have insulation built into them, have air barriers built into them. And they've kind of done that building science to make sure that they're sending a, a good wall to you.
2: I mean, you're talking about using natural products from the area where the building is, talking about using wood and skyscrapers. Does that really make sense?
1: So that's a really big trend right now is kind of a shift back to using mass timber and large timber construction. Um, there are have been a lot of studies on it, and it, it is extremely safe. I think everyone's fear is fire. Really, what ends up happening is these pieces of wood are large enough that the exterior of them gets charred. And when it gets charred, it creates somewhat of a fire coating to it. So it does have an inherent fire rating to it. Sometimes it's more beneficial than steel even because what happens with steel is it'll heat up to a certain point. And when it hits that moment of elasticity, it'll go from kind of working to complete failure. Uh, With wood construction, it'll kind of slowly deteriorate over a long period of time. And so it's still allowing enough time for folks to get out of the building. But there is isn't kind of this uh, moment of collapse.
2: But but I also worry about cutting down all these trees to make these buildings.
1: Yeah, that's a really big topic that's being researched right now. And um, there's a couple of things to that. One is, how do we manage those forests properly? That's a really, really critical piece. Also, the other thing is, where are we getting the wood from? Oftentimes, especially if you're in kind of the southeast region here, it's actually cheaper and more efficient to get that cross laminated timber, that CLT as they call it, from Europe rather than from Canada or even the Northwest. It, you, you have to factor in the, the transportation and the environmental aspects of that. And I think from what I understand of it, as long as it's a managed forest, it can work really well. But there is a large kind of um, gap between. All buildings going to wood. And if that's the case, how do we how do we manage enough forest to make that happen? And can we manage enough forest?
0: There's a lot of talk about solar windows, and there's a new radiating paint so that you paint the wall and the heat just goes off into the stratosphere. Um there's all kinds of well, I was gonna say gimmicks, but they may not be gimmicks, but new technologies.
1: Uh, there, there are a lot of technologies. Some are gimmicks, I'd say. Some are better than others. But I think the key thing that is, how do we embed just good design principles into the beginning of the building? How do we orient the building right? How do we allow for ventilation properly? How do we do kind of these basic things first? How do we design the envelope to just work well for the inhabitants? And then I think those technologies and things like that can come into play after that. But I think the part of the problem with looking at them is it's hard to think about this in such a broad way, but even things like solar panels have a questionable manufacturing process to them. And so they're really great and they're getting better, it seems like monthly, but I think we need to start with how do we design buildings that are inherently better? Um, And some of that's looking at older principles, you know, even just looking at things like old row homes around the city, they were designed in a way to let light and air into them before the use of electricity. The envelopes were not insulated, but they were designed to breathe, which is why those buildings have stood for so long. You know, so these principles that are kind of basic principles, Often in architecture, we call them passive strategies. You know, if we can start with those, then I think we can incorporate the technologies in a more intelligent way.
2: I mean, one of the things we're all worrying about is all these new demands on the grid. Is that going to be a problem for these sustainable buildings as well? What happens when there's a blackout? The grid isn't working or whatever?
1: Yeah, and and I think that's a real benefit of these sustainable buildings is number one, they're they're using a lot less electricity. And number two, they're they're somewhat inherently resilient. I, I remember talking to a colleague of mine who designed a passive house for someone, and they were saying that the grid went out for multiple days. Everyone around them was freezing. This was in the middle of winter. Their house kind of held at 65 to 70 degrees the entire time because the envelope was so robust. That just them being in the house, the warmth of the people was able to maintain that temperature for a long time. So there is kind of this built in resiliency to it. Um, And then the fact that they're not using as much electricity is a really great thing. The more we can decrease the demand for electricity, the better we are. I I think there there is a push to get buildings off of fossil fuels and um, shift it over to electric so that we can have uh, clean energy. But I think if we can do that while we're making them more efficient, then we shouldn't put too much more stress on the grid.
0: I'd like to ask about building codes and zoning. How does that affect sustainable building?
1: Yeah, so the building codes get somewhat rewritten and and modified every three years. But each municipality, each state will Choose whether to adopt the latest version or not. So every state has kind of a different adoption. Within those states, even different municipalities, different cities can choose whether to adopt all or portions of the code or not. The other downside is code has been, you know, over time getting better, but it's not quite enough to hit the targets that we're all hoping for. So even kind of a basic code building isn't going to get us to the point where we want to be as a society to, you know, mitigate climate change as much as we want. Um, So a lot of municipalities, a lot of areas have actually done what they call stretch codes. So they've gone above and beyond the typical code to implement new things. A lot of areas have added laws, the most uh, well-known of which is something called Local Law 97 in New York. Where what they're doing is they're actually taking carbon accounting of buildings above, I believe, 25,000 square feet. And if you are not meeting a certain baseline, then you get a fine for not doing that. So all existing buildings need to start getting in line with this carbon footprint that they've created. It's one of those things that's a really helpful tool. Because as architects, we have limited ability to make decisions for buildings. You know, we're hired as experts and we provide our expertise. But in the end, uh, the owners of the buildings and those giving the financing have a lot more say in what the end result is. And so those codes help a lot to get everybody kind of on the same page.
0: So the architect designer will be as sustainably minded as possible, but still the building might not be built to the best standard that's
1: basically
2: what you're saying yeah because of the cause and because of how much it costs to build it
1: yeah it's it's a matter of a couple things there one is there's a stigma of sustainable design being uh, so expensive so it's often that even when we do try to bring it up early sometimes we get pushback from the other thing is that oftentimes contractors won't want to do it, they'll put a premium on it because it's something that they're not familiar with or that they're scared of. So what we tend to find is if we can have those communications early and um, try to align them with project goals, the better off we are. A a good example that I, I like to give is a project I worked on years ago where a homeowner wanted to put an addition on their house, but the neighborhood that they were in was changing and they weren't too excited by kind of the weekend noise and it was getting very loud and rowdy and so they were saying, you know what, we're just going to move. They weren't anti-sustainable, I'll say, but they, they didn't necessarily come at this from a standpoint of wanting a net zero building. And, and we said, well, you know, if we did a passive house, when you close your windows and doors, it's extremely silent inside the building. And an added benefit to that is, you know, if you're an attached row home, any kind of um, smoke or food smells or any of those odors from a neighbor aren't getting into your house either. And so they said, well, that sounds... of promising and we said well there's also an added bonus which is your heating and cooling bills are going to be almost zero for the year and they said okay well that sounds really great now and so we ended up building them a whole new house that didn't get certified as passive house but would pretty much hit those standards so i think a lot of this is how do we align the goals of sustainability with the goals of a project Um, and sometimes that isn't necessarily just to hit net zero energy Sometimes those goals are something else, but they'll they'll kind of overlap with each other in a great way.
0: So are we missing something that people really should know?
1: One of the the critical things um, that I always try to talk about, especially in Philadelphia, is we have a lot of row home housing stock. And over years, The idea has been to, you know, putting insulation in them. And I think when we start to insulate those buildings, we expose some serious issues with that wall assembly, start to create things like mold and can damage the brick and and do all these kinds of things. So uh, over time, we're seeing those those buildings start to get damaged. And I I think there's just an inherent level of education uh, amongst architects and the general public to just kind of understand those things better so that we're able to have uh, housing that's hopefully affordable, but also energy efficient and healthy for folks.
2: It sort of sounds like also not just educating the person wanting your building built, but all the construction workers who have set contracts they have already or set ways of doing things uh, may be very difficult.
1: Uh, Fortunately, a lot of contractors are starting to learn about it. Uh, and starting to incorporate it into their practices. So it's becoming pretty standard, which is really great.
0: Anywhere people can find out more?
1: Yeah, um, Green Building United's a good one. There's uh, AIA, which is uh, American Institute of Architects.
0: A long time ago,
2: we spoke to some architects in the field of biophilia. Yes, yes. Yeah, biophilic
1: design is is really tied in with uh, something I kind of briefly mentioned, which is like connecting people to nature through building. Right. There's been a lot of studies that are really interesting with biophilic design, Um, one showing that students' um, attention spans and their test scores have gone up drastically if they're able to look out of a window and see a natural environment rather than another building or a roofscape. The interesting part there is looking out and seeing another building or a roofscape, almost the equivalent of not having a window as far as students' attention spans concerned. But just a couple seconds of being able to look outside and see nature is enough to reset the brain and allow students to refocus. So, and there's there's similar studies with biophilic design and its impact on like on the office and and workspace, and worker productivity and happiness and um, and health. So, I, I think the idea of biophilic design is a, a really critical aspect to it all.
0: Thank you so much for talking with us
1: today. Yes, this was fantastic.
0: If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support.